Hey everyone, welcome to Grace Community Church of Willow Street's podcast. If you have any questions or want to learn how you can be more engaged with our church, check us out online at gccws.net, or you can connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. We are praying that it leads you into a growing relationship with Jesus. What do I do? Good morning, everybody. Um, I apologize. We uh, n- prayer pages inserts did not make it into all the bulletins we discovered. Um, so if you guys want to pick one up after the service, we'll have those at either hospitality desk. So feel free to just grab one of those if you did not get one. So I uh, just wanted to let you guys know that. Um, so yeah, thank you. Uh, let's go before the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come before you today remembering that you are our loving caretaker. We know that no matter what happens, we are held in your hands and we can trust you to be with us. So Lord, I ask that you will show us how we can abide with you as we learn all the more how you give us what we need and how you fan the flame of our hearts. You lead us in how to be your church as this body of Christ here in the building and as one body with the believers around the world. Lord, with this, we were blessed to be visited recently by Tama Yuki and Jessica Abe, along with their daughters, Alyssa and Talia. Lord, we thank you for their continued ministry as missionaries for you. And we ask specifically this morning that their time here in America will bless them as well. We pray especially for Alyssa and Talia and that their time here in the States will be life-giving to them and that they will enjoy learning and speaking English. Lord, we just thank you for this family's ministry. God, we know that your light continues to shine through your followers. But we cannot ignore that there's still darkness. We see sickness, we see tragedy and hopelessness. And sometimes we even experience these ourselves. But you never leave. And you will continue to comfort us and help us. I pray that your Holy Spirit will be at work in our hearts and convicting us of our sins and turning us towards you in repentance and surrender. Help us to be your light and to give others the same hope that we have in Christ so that they may also experience joy and satisfaction in relationship with you. So Lord, please show us how to live in peace with others, especially with those within the body of Christ. Help us to model love and patience as your word teaches us and to seek the best for the others around us while we interact with them. And Lord, as we continue to worship this morning, I ask that your spirit will pour into our hearts and that your word will be clear and that it will change us to be more like Christ. We ask that your Holy Spirit will turn us towards you in deeper and deeper worship. And Lord, if there are any walls that we've built up around our hearts, I pray that you will break those down. And I pray, Lord, that you'll speak to us and grow us and change us. And just, Lord, that you will do an impact on us that we know we can't do ourselves. So we thank you for your work and for this time today. In your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen. We'll be reading today from James 4, 1 through 12. 
And it says, what is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you won't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. You adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again, if you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Do you think the scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate, that the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him. And he gives us grace generously. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come close to God and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. Don't speak evil against each other, dear brothers and sisters. If you criticize and judge each other, then you are criticizing and judging God's law. But your job is to obey the law, not to judge whether it applies to you. God alone who gave the law is the judge. He alone has the power to save or to destroy. So what right do you have to judge your neighbor? Prayer and also for reading the word of God. Well, we are continuing our series this morning, Making Faith Work. It's a study in the letter of James. So if you haven't been with us, we do encourage you uh, to stay open to James chapter four. We're gonna continue in this series. And tonight, today, we are considering our interpersonal relationships. Amen? Oh, how we're excited to consider our interpersonal relationships. You know, it's how we get along, how we work out with one another and work together with one another. And sometimes that can get a little difficult, can it? I, I don't know who said this, but I heard someone say one time, it'll be up on your screens, to dwell above with the saints I love, that would be glory. To live below with the saints I know, brother, that's another story. <laughs> if you were with us last week, Pastor Mike concluded chapter three of the letter of James, and he closed by reading verse 18. Now, Sometimes because your Bibles have chapters and verses in them, it can kind of get confusing where you go, okay, we're starting a new idea. But I think there's a strong relationship between verse 18 and James chapter four, verses one through 12. And let me read for you James chapter three, verse 18. This is what James writes. And those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. It's here in verse 18 that James says, peace is possible. Say that with me. Peace is possible. It's possible. Why? Because peacemakers make peace possible. They plant seeds of peace, and then in their lives, they reap a harvest 
of peace, the result being righteousness. Righteousness is when we live rightly with God and with one another. But how do we do this? How is peace possible? You know, sometimes you read a verse like that, verse 18, you wonder, was the guy who wrote that, did he just like wake up one morning really happy? Like he, he rolled out of bed on a peace-filled pillow and everything was right in the world and there was coffee hot there with hazelnut creamer from Wawa and just perfectly set by his bed and just thought, well, you know, I'm gonna write something ridiculous. Peace is possible. Because like, James, what are you doing? I mean, have you read the news? Have you opened the paper? Have you watched TV recently? Peace is impossible. Unless Jesus comes back. Well, James isn't talking about peace for the nation. He's talking about peace for one another. Peace with inside the church, that Christians can have peace amongst ourselves. We don't have to see divisions or fighting or screaming at one another. And the way that he goes about telling us that peace is possible is he first begins talking to us about the cause of our conflicts. That's verses one through six. And then he tells us how to cure our conflicts. That's verses six through 12. Well, first I wanna start with talking about the cause of conflict. You know, when, in verses one through six, I searched really hard for several things because I'm pretty confident, I know you are too, that the cause of conflict in your life and my life is definitely the government. And so I looked for that in here. I didn't see it. So then I went to the next best thing, your HOA. And I thought that's gotta be in here. It wasn't. Township supervisor was not in here. Your neighbor was not in here. The devil, I thought for sure the devil was the result of all my conflict. He was not. He's not found in verses one through six. What about my trials or my temptations? Not there either. And then I found myself actually reading one through six again. And notice how James opens up in verse one. He asks a rhetorical question, not expecting me to answer, but I answered anyway. He says, what causes the quarrels and the fights among you? James, I can tell you who the problem is. He goes, can you? He concludes it by saying, don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? James, I'm not the problem. They're the problem. James says, no, you're the problem. You see, the cause of our conflict is self. It's yourself, it's myself, it's within us, James says. Oswald Smith writes profoundly, the heart of the problem is often the problem of the heart. And here James gets to the heart of the problem. He says, it's, it's you, it's me, it's found within us. And there's three ways that James kind of highlights the sin, the evil desires within us. He begins by saying, we have self-centered desires. Self-centered desires. Look at verse two. He says, you want, but you don't have. And so you scheme and you kill to get it. Scholars are curious whether or not this is hyperbolic language or actually did someone kill somebody in a church because they didn't get what they wanted. It sounds possible. He says, you are jealous of what others have 
but you can't get it, so you fight and you wage war to take it away from them. It's here James tells us that we have these self-centered desires. They're self-centered. They're, they're evil at its core. Actually, in verse one, that phrase, evil desires, the Greek there is where we get the English word hedonism. You know what hedonism is? Hedonism is, is a philosophy, a way of thinking that says, I should seek to please myself. In a sense, the pursuit of man is to make man happy. And so this person who is only trying to gratify themselves is self-centered. I'm gonna get what I want, when I want it, and whatever means it takes to achieve it. Steve Runge in his commentary on James says this, instead of simply condemning pleasures and evil desires, James focuses on the damage they cause when allowed to flourish unchecked by moral restraint. And if you notice in verse two, James tells us what the damage that evil desires and a self-centered heart does. What does he say? Evil desires, they produce scheming, killing, fighting, they wage war. In other words, if you allow your self-centered desires to go unchecked, you will want begin a vicious cycle of retribution. That's what James is getting at. But it's not just self-centered desires. In verses two and three, he talks about a self-sufficient attitude. Look at verses two and three. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. That's a self-sufficient attitude. That's saying, listen, I can do it on my own. I'm a strong, independent man. At least I used to think that until I had three girls and I realized I'm a weak, dependent man, but you get the idea. I walked out of my house the other day and I was talking to my neighbor and my four-year-old runs out and says, dad, you're late, come on. And I was like, and my neighbor looked at me and just started laughing. He goes, they got you on the clock, don't they? And I go, yeah. But sometimes we have these self-sufficient attitudes. I don't need to ask God for help. I can achieve this on my own. All the success I've had in my life, I built with my own hands. Self-sufficient attitude. And James says, even when you do ask, verse three, you don't get it because you ask with all the wrong motives. You have wrong motives, and so you're asking for the wrong stuff. The right stuff to ask for would be for what? We learn this in chapter three of James's letter. Ask for wisdom. Go to a holy, wise God and ask him for wisdom. But this person is completely turned away from that, becomes self-centered and self-sufficient. James says the last form of self that is causing all this conflict is a self-consuming lifestyle. You have self-consuming habits. Look at the end of verse three. It says, you want only what will give you pleasure. It's hedonism. It's what will give you pleasure. So you pursue it with everything you have. You know, oftentimes people will come into my office or an individual will come to my office. I don't know if your kids, parents ever come to your house and they raid the fridge and after they're done raiding the fridge, they sit down at the table and they start telling you about someone else and all the problems that this other person has. And, and some of your parents are nodding your head and about six minutes into that, you just wanna throw up and be like, all right, are you done now, you know? And so sometimes people will come to my office or some individual will come and say, listen, I wanna tell you what so-and-so did. 
It was horrible. I was there, I saw it, I heard exactly what they said. And let me tell you what, I know what they did and I know what they said. And let me tell you what they were thinking because I can read their thoughts, you know. And so this is exactly what they were thinking and this is why they did it. And isn't this horrible? And preacher, you got to fix that. I'm like, all right. I don't know if parents, you ever do this with your kids, but sometimes it's a good practice. I learned this years ago is in that moment, you ask them, do you like pie? Just ask them that. One, it'll stop them from complaining for two seconds. It'll get them thinking about their gut and then they'll come back to reality. I like pie, all kinds of pie, you know? Any kind, if you really wanna bring it this week, strawberry would be great. But I mean, you, <laughs> let the Holy Spirit speak to you on that one. <laughs> and so what I do is I take a piece of paper out, I draw a circle. I say, this circle represents a pie. I said, why don't you take this circle and then you draw on this circle what piece of the pie you feel like you can, you contributed towards the problem. And so oftentimes they'll take that circle and they'll sit down and they'll just draw like a little slither. This is what I'm responsible for. And I go, well, what's the rest of the pie? Well, that represents the other person and all of their problems. I was trying to tell you about that, preacher. And so in a shocking way, I said, all right, then, you know what we're gonna deal with in the next 40 minutes? It's just your slice of the pie. Of course, sometimes they get upset because they go, well, aren't you gonna deal with the problem? I said, no, the problem isn't sitting here. You're sitting here, so let's deal with your slice of the pie. You see, that, that's some of the problems that self does to us, doesn't it? We have a self-centered attitude, a self-sufficient um, you know, way of thinking, a self-consuming lifestyle. What does it cause us to do? It causes us to see that everyone else is the problem and we take the focus off of ourselves. But when you're looking at only what you've contributed, then you can deal with what you've contributed towards the problem. And that's what James is getting at. He's saying, look, where do fights and quarrels come from? Start with yourself. Stop pointing the finger at everyone else and their problems. How did you contribute to the problem? And so James calls us to say, why don't you take responsibility for your slice of the pie? And it's not just, listen, self that's the issue. In James chapter four, verses four through six, he says that it's actually also a combination of self and unfaithfulness. Look what he says here in verse four and following. He says, you adulterers, which is some of the strongest language in the New Testament, by the way. You don't find this really anywhere else, but James just kind of takes the gloves off and he says, you adulterers, you wayward spouse. Look what he says. Don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? It seems like in one second, in James chapter three, like we looked at last week, James is calling them brother and it's real kind language. And now suddenly he's saying, you're an adulterer. He's not trying to be nice here. He's just trying to say, this has become reality. You know, the heart behind the letter of James is that we would mature in our faith no matter what our trials and our temptations are. And we read this in James chapter one, didn't we? A few weeks ago, I wanna remind you of it. James begins his letter in verse, chapter one, verses two to four by just telling them, listen, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. And so James is looking at this church 
or these group of Christians and saying, look, look at all the conflicts among you. Look at all the quarreling and the fighting. Listen, you're no longer maturing. You've actually become an adulterer. He says, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? It is possible for us as Christians to become an enemy of God. It might sound like strange language to you, but Jesus even said this in Matthew chapter six. He said, you can't serve both God and money. You have to decide whether or not you're gonna actually fully follow Jesus or are you gonna follow the thoughts and the patterns of this world? But you can't do both. But listen, when we have self-centered desires with a self-sufficient attitude and a self-consuming lifestyle, over time that makes us an enemy of God. It's a sobering passage. I don't know if you realize this, but some of you lived during the 60s and 70s. Raise your hands. Okay, just you know, don't be embarrassed of it. You, you lived through it. You survived it, okay? I don't know if you know this, but the clothing you wore in the 60s and 70s is now considered cool. So if you haven't changed your clothes since the 60s or 70s, you're now trendy. Kids want to come over and raid your closet and hang out with you. So there you go. And if you're Pennsylvania Dutch, put, it, put a sale tag on there and you make some money. In James chapter four, what he's saying to this church and what he's saying to these Christians is he's saying it's like at one point in your life, you, you, you didn't know God. And he's saying it's like God came into your life and he called you his friend. And he took off the clothing of anger and hate and scheming and war waging and self-centeredness and self-sufficiency and self-consuming. He took off all those clothes and he put on Jesus Christ in your life and he gave you the ability to be a peacemaker. And what you've done over time is now you've put on the old clothing again and you're wearing that around. And the problem is it doesn't fit you anymore. And so he's saying you've become a wayward spouse. And it's not just with God that he says. Because that's verse four of chapter four, right? You've become this enemy of God when you used to be his friend. You haven't just been unfaithful to God. He also says in verse five, you've been unfaithful to the word of God. You've been unfaithful to the scriptures. Look at verse five. This is obviously one of the hardest verses. If you have a study Bible, it'll tell you one of the hardest verses to translate New Testament, which is why you notice this morning, I'm not using the NIV. I've chosen to use the NLT they're the two different views of how to translate this verse. So if you're wondering, why is he using the NLT this morning? It's because I think the NLT got it right. And I'm not gonna explain to you the reason why, but there you go. My wife thought I should share that with the congregation. She says, they should know why you're using the NLT. And I said, well, okay, I'll tell them. But look what he says here. You haven't just been unfaithful to God, you've been unfaithful to the scriptures. Verse five, do you think the scriptures have no meaning? You've been unfaithful to them. They say that God is passionate, that the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him. To him. The word of God teaches that God loves you. He put his spirit inside of you and he wants to see your life flourish. And yet you're putting on the old clothing, the old self. Have you stopped studying 
and knowing what the scriptures teach. And finally, he says, you've not just been unfaithful to God, unfaithful to his word, but also unfaithful to his grace. Grace that is described in verse six as a generous grace that God has given us. You know, it's interesting. I don't believe that most Christians wake up one day and suddenly are now an enemy of God. I don't think it happens like that. I think it's as the song says, it's a slow fade. And you know, there are some things in our lives that can fade, like our clothing, that can fade. It's gonna fade. Your furniture, it's gonna fade. Sunglass tent on your sunglasses, that'll fade. No big deal. But your walk with Jesus Christ, if that begins to fade, and you say, well, listen, just a little self-indulgence, just a a little self-centeredness, just a little sufficiency on myself, listen, it'll be okay. And eventually, James says, if you pursue those things, you're gonna fade away slowly from your relationship with God. Think about it in the context of a marriage. Oftentimes, people will come to me and they'll say, hey, look, we've fallen in love. We wanna get married. And then they get engaged. And they come and they show up in my office. And you know what the growing trend right now is amongst you know, young people that are trying to get married is their wedding dates are really unusual. They'll come and they'll say, I'll say, well, when are you gonna get married? And they'll be like, 2026. I'm like, 2026? Show up in 2025 then, you know, if you make it that long. Like, what in the world? It's like these long engagements have become popular. I'm a fan of short engagements, but anyway, I don't want to mess up with some parents right in the room that are going, no, long's fine. Long is fine. (laughs) You know, wait till your daughters get older. You'll be praying for 2026. (laughs) But the interesting thing is, if you think about it in terms of marriage, they'll come to my office and they're so excited about life. And they'll say, look, we have a wedding date. And the only thing that they have on their mind is that wedding day. And at some point in the conversation, because my wife and I learned this when we went through premarital counseling, is we'll say to them, listen, I wanna help you prepare for your marriage, not necessarily your wedding day. One of them is gonna last a single day and the other is supposed to last till death do us part. Which one do you wanna spend the most time on? Because what happens in marriage is oftentimes you have two people, say Joe and Sally, and if your names are Joe and Sally, sorry, I don't know you, but I'm just making this up. And they're, they're getting engaged, and the only thing they're fixating on is a single day. And so they start off here, and then they go to this single day, and that's the only thing they're fixating on. And then what we'll often say to them is, so what do you do after that day's done? How do you still stay in love and how do you still continue to grow in your marriage and your knowledge of one another and your love for one another and your relationship with Jesus Christ? How do you do that? And they go, we don't know. The only thing we're thinking about is our wedding day. And in the Christian life, you find this to be true. You have two people, Paul and Jesus, whatever, and and Jesus finally meets Paul and Paul gets saved and comes to know Christ and then he gets baptized and then it's like, well, now what do I do? And the same thing happens in marriage. When you have two people, they come together and they have no plan for day two. What happens is they slowly start to separate over time. Because the only thing that was bringing them together was a single day. And in a relationship with Jesus Christ, that can happen. You come together with Christ, you get baptized. And if no one disciples you, what happens? Eventually the world will take over. That's what James is writing here. He's saying it's very possible for you as a Christian to have this slow fade away from Jesus, the one who calls you a friend, the one who loves you, the one who has given you life. And so I ask you this morning, as you examine your own life, have you faded away from Jesus? 
As you think about your own lifestyle, have you become self-centered? Have you become self-sufficient? Have you embraced a self-consuming habit? But listen, there is a cure. There is a cure for the conflict that we have within and the conflict we have with other believers. Because if you know somebody who's a Christian and they've slowly faded away from Jesus, you know what often happens is they faded away from you. And when you try to engage them, it's like a big war erupts. And so James calls the church back to Christ and back to himself. And he says, listen, here's the cure for your conflict. And he tells us in verses 6 through 12 how to cure our conflict. The first is this, embrace God's grace. Embrace God's grace. Look at verse 6. If you want to know what will cure your heart and the evil desires that are there, the grace of God can do it. James writes, and he gives grace generously. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. This is where James says, look, you have a choice. You either embrace God's grace or you be proud. But I think you know this. Pride comes before the before the fall. Mark all says this, if pride is the father of all sin, then grace is the mother of all virtue. And I know what you're thinking, because you're thinking what I'm thinking probably. But Paul, in the midst of a conflict, I get that I have a part to play and I got a slice of the pie, but doesn't God care about what this other person has done? Isn't he paying attention? Doesn't that matter? And James will write in verses 11 and 12, and he'll say, yes, it does matter, but God is the judge. Look at verse 12. God alone who gave the law is the judge, and he alone has the power to save or to destroy. So what right do you have to judge your neighbor? So take a step back. In the midst of a conflict or a circumstance where you find yourself in an argument with another Christian and think about the grace of God in your life. You know, when I think about grace, I often think about grandmothers. I don't know why. Maybe you don't think about that. You probably think about Jesus because you're a little holier than me. But I often think about grandmothers. When I was in college, I used to run a lot. And uh, one of our teammates we had, he had an Italian grandmother. Now, Italian grandmothers... I have this like high regard for Italian grandmas because I've only, because of this one that I met basically. So, you know, you, I don't know if all Italian grandmas are like this, but this one I met, she was awesome. We, we had a race down in Virginia and I never met her before and she was probably like this tall. And I don't know if all Italian grandmas are this tall, but that's how tall she was. And we show up at her house and I thought that we should eat before we got to her house because it'd be respectful, but we were told not to eat before you get to the Italian grandmother's house. Why? Because she had the five course meal. And it was awesome. I mean, I've never had homemade lasagna and homemade mozzarella, but let me tell you, homemade mozzarella is just about as good as homemade scrapple. I mean, they're like right on same par with one. It was so, I, mean, I had two helpings of the lasagna. And let me tell you, there was five courses. And before I could finish the entree, she's already saying, would you like some cake? Absolutely, bring it on. And it wasn't just like, you know, the world's sli tiniest slither of cake. It was a giant chunk. I was thinking, how big is the cake? So I'm sitting there eating, and I'm about like a third of the way done. This 
you know, the whole cake myself. And before I could even say anything next, because I'm drinking and eating, you know, like I'm a quiet eater because there's food, you got to finish it. She says, honey, would you like some more? And I was about to say, well, no, I'm actually full. But before I could do that, she took the plate away from me. I wasn't even done the whole plate. And she put another piece in front of me. Now, who does that? But this sweet Italian grandmother, which now I have a full respect for all Italian grandmas. So if you're an Italian grandma, bravo. I had to run the next day. Let me tell you, it was one of the worst races ever. <laughs> but I felt good. <laughs> and when I think about that Italian grandma, I think about God's grace. Because as a Christian, you think about the grace that God lavishes on you when you became a Christian. Right? Some, what happens in conflict? Our mind gets all cloudy. We get all worked up, all worked up emotionally, and we can't take this step back. And yet God is saying, look, if you could just take one step back, you'd realize that, listen, I've been gracious to you, and what you're arguing about isn't going to make an eternal difference at all. Paul, think about the salvation I've given you. If you've never had anyone ever call you son or daughter, God in Father has adopted you. If you've never been shown mercy, God was merciful. If you've never had your sins forgiven, when somebody knows exactly what you've done, he forgives sin. If you've never had someone want to redeem you when you found yourself in the worst place of your life and God says, I want to redeem you and I want to restore you. I want to give you an internal inheritance, not one that will waste away by moth and rust or be destroyed, but I'm going to put a blessing for you in heaven, namely my son. Think about the grace that he gives to us generously. And it's not just his grace, it's also his promises. In verses seven through 10, James talks about the promises of God. Now I want you to get your pen out, open up your Bible to verses seven through 10. And I just wanna read this. And I want you to do what I normally do in this passage. I read this passage quite a bit and I normally circle all the things that God tells me I have to do. So we're gonna practice that right now. As I read through this, you know, just take that as a cue. Just start circling all the things that God tells you to do. There's 10 things. If you didn't get 10 circles, you missed one. Verses seven through 10, here we go. So humble yourselves before God. You should circle humble. Resist the devil and, and he will flee from you. Come close to God, circle close and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, circle wash, you sinners. Purify your hearts for the, your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears, you should circle, let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. Oftentimes when I come to this passage, it is so convicting because I see all the things that I have to do. And yet part of the sin of man is to often only focus on what we must do and to ignore the promises of God. We should be motivated to have peace and be peacemakers, not because I can do it on my own, but because of what God has promised he would do. There's three promises in verses seven through 10 that oftentimes people miss. The first is this, resist the devil and he will flee. Resist the devil and God says he'll flee. Well, look, I don't know about you, but when James says this, humble yourselves, that means submit. Actually, the idea is it's a military term. It means that one day you were in the army of Satan 
You were scheming and you were warring and you were killing and you were all about yourself and all about you and what you wanted and what you could get. And then one day God shows up, rescues you and you stop joining his army and now you've submitted to God. And when we do that, James writes, when you resist the devil, the devil will flee. The second promise of God in this passage is come near to God, draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. Think about that. As you and I are in the midst of conflicts with people, oftentimes we ignore the fact that God wants to be in the midst of that conflict. And he says, if you will humble yourself and come closer to me, not towards trying to be right, not towards trying to be heard, but to simply draw closer to me, I'll draw closer to you. And the third is found in verse 10 when he says, humble yourself. And what does God promise there? I'll do the lifting. I'll do all the lifting. And I will lift you up. You know, it's interesting that times you and I can get ourselves all worked up and we can get ourselves all confused and we can get ourselves all, you know, bent out of shape over things. And yet God says, that I want you to turn your attention off of what you can do and put yourself in a position to receive and see my promises being fulfilled. Resist the devil, draw near to me, humble yourself. And in that moment, you're gonna see the devil flee, you're gonna see God come, and you're gonna see God lift you up. It's interesting, back in June, I met a family they had been attending for some time, the Augustines. I actually met Dave and Joanne at LGH because Dave wasn't doing well medically. And so, because sometimes I don't know everybody at Grace Community Church, when I often will meet them in certain circumstances, I'll say, well, how'd you get your name? That's what I said to Dave, which often seems like a strange question to ask somebody, but you gotta start somewhere, you know what I mean? And you figured, do you talk about the weather? Do you talk about you know, how he got his name? So he goes, oh, can I tell you how I got my name? So he, he had a story. And he said, this interesting story, he goes, I wanna tell you. And I said, great. And so he shared with me, Dave shared with me how he got his name. He said, look, uh, when my mom was pregnant with me, the doctor wanted her to have an abortion. And uh, so she had a friend that said to her, well, why don't you, before you make that decision, why don't you read through the Psalms? And so she took up her friend. She decided she'd start reading through the Psalms. She got to Psalm 139 and says, you are fearfully and you are wonderfully made. She closed her Bible. She decided that day, I'm gonna name my son after the man who wrote Psalm 139, which was King David, so she named him Dave Augustine. Dave's wife is with us in this service. In June, Dave went home to be with the Lord. And we held his funeral service in this room on June the 24th. Do you know what happened on June the 24th in this nation? Roe versus Wade was overturned. The scriptures are true. You resist the devil. You come close to God. And you humble yourself. And sometimes it can look hard when we humble ourselves. It can be full of mourning and grief and tears and it's not happy. And there's some things we've got to work on to get right And we have to come to realize that we've been in sin and we've been in conflict, not just with people, but also with a holy and gracious God. 
And yet God promises that the devil will flee. He will come close to us and he will lift us up. You know, I wish Dave's mom could see that at the funeral, Dave's children were sitting down here with Joanne. Followers of Jesus Christ, confident in Jesus Christ. That's what the Lord promises to do. When you and I, in the midst of whatever circumstance we find ourselves in, we embrace the grace of God and we trust the promises of God. And they might not look like what the world promises, but there's so much more reward in them, amen? Let me pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you, Father, that we can trust you I know that James chapter four, Lord, can be quite difficult for many of us to look at. It can cause some of us to have maybe even some anxiety as we even consider our own life and how we have chosen to live over the past week or month or even many years. As we've watched ourselves slowly fade away from Jesus and fall into the thoughts and the patterns of this world. So, Father, I pray that as your Holy Spirit would speak to us this morning, that we would humble ourselves and we would embrace your grace and we would trust your promises. And it's in the strong name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Well, thanks for listening to today's message and choosing to spend some time with us. To get more information about Grace Community Church, our service times and location, check out our website at gccws.net.